0: In the lesson this morning, we looked at the book of 1 Samuel, and we looked at a couple of chapters there about a really interesting series of events that takes place concerning the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, It is taken into battle by Israel. They lose the battle, and they lose the Ark of the Covenant. We didn't really talk about it this morning, but it's actually that event right there that leads to Eli, one of the final judges in Israel, It leads to his death. Uh, He hears that his sons have been killed, and that's very bad news. But then he hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken and he's so blown away by that he falls backwards in his chair and dies. Um, And then his daughter-in-law, she hears about the ark and about the death of her husband and about the death of Eli. And she ends up going into labor because she had been pregnant and uh, names the child Ichabod. uh, That means uh, the glory has left Israel. Like this was a a traumatic time in Israel. And then we read about what happens from city after city uh, where the ark of the covenant goes among the Philistines and how it brings great turmoil to them and how it brings uh, disease and, and calamity and it brings uh, um, some humility to their gods as their gods come toppling over. And and we see all of this before it's finally returned to Israel. But that's one story that fits in with a lot of other stories about what was happening when the judges were ruling the, the children of Israel. So like the book of Judges uh, is... You know, judge after judge after judge who is selected during times of calamity in Israel. There's a foreign oppressor and the people have turned away from God and then they end up being in, in such terrible bondage that they call out to God and he raises up this deliverer who's called a judge and this judge will usually be some sort of military victor but he'll go out and he'll redeem the people bring them back and and the people will be thankful for like a minute and then they'll go back to their you know normal cycle of turning against God and then going back into oppression and then crying out to god and he brings a deliverer and then they're thankful for a second and that happens over and over again well when the book of first samuel starts we're still in that cycle uh, and eli is going to be the judge of the book of first samuel and then samuel will be a judge and after this event with the ark it's right after that once you get to chapter eight the children of israel are ready to be done with this cycle They're ready to be done with having uh, judges ruling over them. They look at the nations around them, and they see that there is peace and prosperity. There probably isn't actually that much peace and prosperity, but sometimes you can, when you want something bad enough, you begin to see only the good in the world around you. And you think, man, if we were more like that, if we were more like them, if we could just copy that right there. And they probably did so with, in some ways, good intentions. But what they decide to do is they call out that, look, Samuel, sons are kind of rotten, and they're going to be bad judges, so we don't want them to be judges. Look at all the nations around us. Look at the ones that are prospering and having success. They have kings. Why don't we get a king for ourselves? And Samuel's not thrilled with this, as he shouldn't be. In fact, he uh, goes to God about it, and God's not thrilled with it. But God reminds Samuel that by choosing a king for themselves, they're not rejecting Samuel as their leader. They're actually rejecting God. Because while they looked at their situation as though they had no king but everyone else did, the reality is they actually did have a king. They had a king who had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. They had a king who had freed them from oppressors over and over and over again. They had a king who was a wise and brilliant and loving lawgiver. They had a king who ruled above the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. That was the, the image of his throne. And that's where he sat in throne. Now, it was an invisible throne. And their king, they couldn't see with their eyes. But they had a very real king who they were supposed to honor and who they were supposed to, to follow and to trust. And they decided we're tired of the invisible king. We want a visible king. We want a king of flesh and blood who we can see. We want a king who's a lot like us, and we want a king who's like these other kings that we see around us. And as God often does, God lets us get our way. Um, even when we have bad ideas, he may warn us against those bad ideas, but he lets us, he lets us act upon them. And Israel does this, and If you know the story of Israel from that point forward, um, very few bright spots until the northern Israel is uh, going to be wiped out by Assyria. Southern Judah is going to be taken into exile for 70 years in Babylon. They're going to come back home and they're not going to have a king anymore. Uh, And not only that, but prior to that, there's civil war over who gets to be king. And there's all kinds of problems that emerge in Israel. But one thing that's fascinating, that whole whole situation, that whole uh, fighting over a king and then who gets to be king and all of that stuff, there is a passage, and if we're talking about neglected passages in the Bible, when it comes to the history of Israel, I think this may be right up there and right near the top of the list. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, and it talks about what will happen when Israel decides they want a king. Almost as if God knew it was going to happen. Uh, Almost as if God was well aware that Israel would get to the point where they looked at the nations around them and they decided, we want to follow them instead of following you. We want a king like them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 17. That's where our lesson is actually going to come from. And it's a passage that describes what the king in Israel should be like. And the reason I say it's perhaps the most neglected passage is look at every single king in Israel and compare them to this and see how close they are. What you'll see is it doesn't happen uh, very much. You know, it doesn't really happen much at all. Uh, At least in in some of these ways, they tend to fall short because just about every king has something in common. They don't want to listen to this passage. Uh, Just about every king and human ruler wants to go against some of the ideas that are brought about in this passage. And so, in Deuteronomy 17, we're going to look at what the ideal king in Israel looks like. This is what they're supposed to be. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. Moses writes, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it, and you live in it, you shall say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me. Well, that's like almost exactly what they said in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Hey, let us have a king over us, like all the nations around us. They're being told, that's what you're going to say. You're going to one day wish for a king and say, let's set a king over ourselves. Then verse 15 says, you shall surely set a king over, uh, over you whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your own countrymen you shall set up uh, a king, or you shall set as king over yourselves. So he starts off with a couple of stipulations as to what this king selection is going to be like. Um, The first thing he says is it should be a king that the Lord your God chooses. Do you remember one of the differences between King Saul and David? Uh, Not only were they from different families and things like that, but King Saul looked so much like a king. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was handsome. He was well-respected, and the people wanted him to be king. After Saul's kingdom uh, comes to some crashing problems, uh, God ends up selecting a different king, and he tells Samuel to go to uh, the house uh, of Jesse, and there he will show him who's going to be king. God decides for this next king he's going to choose him, and he doesn't choose the tallest— He doesn't choose the oldest. He doesn't choose the one who stands head and shoulders above everyone else. He doesn't choose the firstborn. In fact, he does the opposite. He chooses the last, uh, the youngest. And the reasoning given is that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he's going to choose a king who is going to have a heart that's more in harmony with his than a heart that's in harmony with all those other kings out there. And so that's why David is ultimately chosen. Um, As time goes on, it seems that even david once you become king it's really really hard not to become corrupted it's not to it's going to be hard not to begin to act like other kings and you see this happen you know, in a number of ways It's counting his armies and seeing how vast and grand his might is, or whether it's getting to the point where he begins to multiply wives for himself and he starts taking wife after wife after wife until he gets to the point that he sees a woman who cannot be his wife because she's married to someone else named Bathsheba. And he decides, you know what? I want her anyway and he takes her for himself. And all of a sudden, David starts acting like all the other types of kings out there. David starts acting like King Saul. David starts acting like those foreign kings, not like the king that God specifically chose, and certainly not like what we're going to read here in Deuteronomy 17. And from that point forward in his reign, even though you do see repentance on his part, you see turmoil and problems and conflict and division over and over and over again until pretty much the end. Uh, David's kingdom doesn't really end on a high note, and then it passes along to Solomon. And as we're going to see here in just a minute, Solomon is almost verse by verse and line by line the exact opposite of what we're going to read right here in Deuteronomy 17 about God's chosen king. And so as we go through, we can compare the kings of Israel to this king right here. Uh, but the first thing is that the king should be selected by God, rather than just uh, arbitrarily selected by humans. And he says, he shall be one from among your own countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. Now that's really interesting. That final phrase of verse 15 says, you shall not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Now that's fascinating when it comes to Later on in Israelite history, like after the return from Babylonian exile, and even while they're in exile, who is their king? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is their king while in exile he's not from among their own country. I mean he's, he's a foreigner who has dominated them and made himself king over them. And what you end up seeing is over and over again from that point forward, whether it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Nabonidus or whether it's Belshazzar or whether it is uh, Cyrus or Darius or whether it's uh, like the kings of the Greeks and Alexander and all that, like, no matter who's in charge, they keep having this foreign king over them. And that's one of the reasons that the children of Israel long for and expect and put their hope and trust in a son of David, a descendant of David, one of their own countrymen, to become king again. Because on the one hand, that's who's supposed to be their king, and it's not supposed to be a foreigner. And so when Caesar is in charge, something's wrong in Israel, and there's there's the hope that God will rectify that and, and solve that problem. But then also you have the fact that God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. And so not only is there supposed to be one from among their own countrymen on the throne, God made the promise that there would be. And so it seems like there's a hiatus in this promise as they look out and they see Greek kings and Roman kings and Persian kings and and all this. And they're trying to figure out when is our king going to arise and take the throne again. And so that's part of that messianic hope and, and expectation that we will have a great king again. But what's fascinating is even in that hope and expectation, their picture of what that king's going to look like it often looks like David. It often looks like the opposite of what we're about to read right here in Deuteronomy 17. So let's read the next verse, verse 16. These are some of the things that this king should not do. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, "...nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way." So, uh, don't multiply horses. You think, well, what is, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about the military uh, and expanding your army so that you have chariots and horses and cavalry and all of that stuff that you can send out to go and conquer other places. He's saying he's not supposed to be one who spends all of his time building up military might and then making foreign alliances with, like, Egypt so that he can get horses from Egypt to build up the military. And that way you not only have your own might and your own strength and your own horses, but then you have the might of the nations around you, like Egypt and their horses. And once you do that, you start to think, I'm indestructible. And you know what happens to a king who thinks he's indestructible? Nothing good. Uh, once a king gets to that point, he cometh before the fall. You know, that's usually what leads him to turn his mind and his heart away from God onto himself. That's what causes a king like David to start taking a census among, of, of, of his people and start uh, counting his military and starting to see how great and how mighty he is. It's when you lose focus and start making those types of alliances. You know who made a lot of those types of alliances? Uh, Solomon. Solomon. Solomon, as I mentioned, he almost verbatim goes down this list for things that you should not do. We'll look at some verses that that demonstrate that here in a moment. But look at verse 17. Not only are you not to multiply horses, thus putting your faith and your trust in your military and in your might, you're also, verse 17, not to multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor uh, Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. So you don't multiply horses, putting your faith and your trust in your might. You don't multiply wives and uh, try to make foreign alliances that way, or try to satisfy every lust you have just by adding every attractive woman you see to a harem and having it grow and grow and grow and having wife after wife after wife. And you're also not supposed to multiply wealth and riches so that you become so much more wealthy than everyone else in the land like you're not supposed to have that vast inequality between the king and the other people because he'll end up uh, thinking of himself as greater and more important than all of those other people and again that that leads to problems so if you kind of boil this down you should have someone chosen by god you should have someone who's among their people who loves and cares about them and he is not supposed to put his faith and his trust and his power or his, his, uh, his abilities into multiplying power, like horses, or sex, like wives, or wealth, or greed, like, like money. And those are the things that a king in Israel is not supposed to do. Yet what does almost every single king in Israel do? Like, those are the three things that kind of set you apart as king. The one who has the most military might and the one who has uh, the most wives and the one who has the most wealth in all the land is generally going to be the king. Like if you were to, to start uh, looking in the reign of Sol- Solomon, who do you think had more wives than anyone else? Who do you think had a uh, stronger military than anyone else? Who do you think had more uh, wealth than anyone else? It was Solomon. You look at the life of David. I believe by the time that he uh, takes Bathsheba for himself, I think he's already on wife number seven. As you read through the story, like he just keeps growing and growing and growing in the numbers. And, and that's that's what leads to the downfall of these kings. They end up becoming greedy men. I was having a, a conversation just recently with, um, with so, some ministers, and we were talking about uh, polygamy in the Bible, and how it is kind of interesting that when you read about someone like David you don't see a lot of condemnation about the polygamy or, or Solomon even. Uh, you don't see that there are verses written during their reign that says this is sinful and wrong uh, And so there was some question about why and I I tend to think that like a lot of things, if you read the story of the Bible and you try to pay attention to it as you read through it, the Bible doesn't only teach through a strict set of laws that are written down one, two, three, four, five. Often the Bible teaches through narrative. One of the things that's interesting is the first case of polygamy that you see. It's way back in the early chapters of Genesis. You have a guy named Lamech, and he ends up taking two wives for himself, and he's the first person you see do that. And then not only that, He ends up uh, being insulted and cursed by a man and by a boy, and so he strikes one and kills the other. And he ends up saying, look, if you think Cain was bad, if you think Cain will be avenged if you go after him, me 70-fold. I am that much more powerful. I am that much. And all of a sudden, the first case of polygamy you see is someone who's violent, ruthless, and starts collecting wives for himself. He's someone who's trying to be like this type of bad king. He's trying to rise in in power and in might and in glory, and he thinks he's incredible for doing so. And that is the first example. That And it's, it's a very wicked example. As you look throughout the Bible, read the rest of Genesis, and look at all the examples of polygamy. It's like, no one's happy when that's happening. You think Rachel and Leah love that setup? Uh, Read what they name their children. It's like Leah is, Rachel's the loved wife, but Leah's the one who's able to have children. So with every child she has, the name is some sort of competition with her sister over the issue. And then when she can't have children anymore, and, and Rachel says, well, here, here's my handmaid. That way I can kind of compete with Leah. And then Leah's like, well, here's my handmaid. And all of a sudden, you start having these this man who's having children with these four different women, and that's not at all what God wanted, and none of the women are happy about that. Look at Abraham with Hagar. That didn't work out very well. It's like anytime you see polygamy start to enter the picture, it actually causes quite a few problems. It actually leads to resentment and, and anger and hurt feelings, and it leads to, to competition and, and all of those things. Uh, look at how the book of 1 Samuel Begins. It's with a man with multiple wives, and and one of them can bear children, and the other one can't, and the one who can't is heartbroken over it. And it, it's not only is that heartbreaking enough, but then when you're losing the competition, it's so much worse. And that happens over and over again until you start getting to some of the kings, and you get to David, who not only starts to collect wives, but then he starts taking other people's wives, and you get to someone like Solomon, who starts making like hundreds and hundreds of wives, and then concubines on top of that, and we come to find out that these wives ended up doing exactly what Deuteronomy 17 would ha- said would happen. They turned his heart away from the Lord. Let's look at a couple of passages about King Solomon, keeping horses, wives, and wealth in mind. Uh, the three things that you're not supposed to multiply and accumulate as you become king. Look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 in verse 1. Sorry, not 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. This one's kind of interesting because uh, specifically Deuteronomy 17 mentions not uh, getting horses from Egypt and not making these foreign alliances, not having the people go back to Egypt. You have wives, horses, and Egypt all mentioned together. And one of the early things you see King Solomon do in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Like, of all the people who Israel, with their history, should not be making alliances with, it's Pharaoh in Egypt. And yet that's who he's going to put his trust in through marriage, and taking Pharaoh's daughter to be a wife. And so he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. That right there is an early signpost that things are going to start getting, uh, getting worse, and worse, things are going to start unraveling for him. He starts taking an Egyptian wife for himself. Uh, He will compound this as the story goes on. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. And this is where you'll see even more of what happens with his wives. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women among the daughters of Pharaoh, by Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Well, Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 uh, concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Uh, and for Solomon went after the Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and and it starts just mentioning all of the other gods that Solomon turned to. So Solomon became uh, an idolater uh, towards the end of his reign, and it's because he didn't heed the wisdom given in Deuteronomy 17. He started becoming the exact opposite of that. Uh, When you look at the end of chapter 10 of 1 Kings, notice uh, the horses that Solomon has. Don't multiply horses, right? we look at 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 26. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots, 1,200 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. Then notice verse 28. Also, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt in Kew, and for, uh, the king's merchants procured them from Q at a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for one hundred and fifty that's exactly the country that was named. Don't start getting horses from this country. And what does Solomon do? He gets so many horses that he he's not satisfied with the number that he has. So he starts reaching out to Egypt for more and more and more. He is directly doing the exact opposite of what Moses said the king in Israel should do. What about wealth? Well, look at uh, verse 27 of uh, 1 of Kings 10. King Solomon the king made silver as common as stone in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Uh, he makes he makes silver so abundant that it's just as common as a stone. You look at verse 14 of chapter 10. And it starts talking about some of this wealth. Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Beside that, from the traders and the wares and the merchants of the kings of the Arabs and the governors of his country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold for each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. And you read through this and the whole thing is just about how much gold and silver he's accumulated and what incredible things that he does with it and uh, the the sculptures that he's able to make and all of that i have to think that that story is being intentionally structured to let you know he's accumulated horses he's made deals with egypt he's accumulated wives having made deals with egypt he's accumulated wealth way more than he could ever use or ever need he has become the exact opposite of what god's chosen king is supposed to be and look what happens to his heart It leads you right into chapter 11, which describes all of the ways in which he turned away from the Lord. Deuteronomy 17 is trying to instill within Israel a picture of what the king ought to be. And just about every king says, I'd rather be like the kings of the nations around me. You know what happens after Solomon's reign? Well, if you see that as your king and you realize, hey, I have the chance to have all the wives in the world, and all the horses in the world, and all the gold and silver in the world, you're going to have a lot of people fighting for that position. And that ultimately is what ends up happening. You have Jeroboam, and you have Rehoboam, and you have allegiances that are split and divided. ends up tearing the country in half. Uh, If you read the story of what happens to northern Israel, you have a lot of people vying for that throne. Uh, You have wickedness that takes in and leads Israel into despair and into ruin. Solomon In all of his might and in all of his wisdom, David, with a heart after God's own heart, they each got turned into corruption as they became king. What king is there that becomes king and doesn't multiply wives, doesn't multiply horses, doesn't uh, multiply wealth, is chosen by God and is ultimately uh, one from among their own countrymen who, who loves him? You're not going to find them in the book of first and Second Kings, but you do see a king like that who arises. And it's one of the reasons that King was missed. He looked exactly like what God said a king should look like in Deuteronomy 17, but he looked nothing like any king anyone had ever seen before. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he is the king of kings. He is God's ideal chosen king. He's the king who wasn't wealthy. He's the king who didn't take wife after wife. He's the king who, instead of riding in on a chariot and on a horse, rode in on a a colt. He's the king who uh, is the mightiest that there has ever been. But it is not through military strength, wealth, and through lust and and self-aggrandizement and taking whatever he wants. He looks quite different than the Roman king who sat upon the throne. But he's the king who, in submission to God's will, showed us what a true king ought to look like. As you keep reading Deuteronomy 17, you see some other important ideas about what this king in Israel should look like. Verse 18 says, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. This is something kings were supposed to do. He's supposed to write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. That's that's an awesome homework assignment for a king. All right, if you're going to become a king, You better learn how to write Uh, and you better write down in the presence of the Levitical priests the law that you're going to enforce on God's behalf for these people there's a reason why it's difficult to be a king in Israel because you don't really have a job that much like when you look at what the rulers in Israel were supposed to be there was a place for uh, the priests to fit in they had a job specifically for them they had a place they fit in well prophets They had a job, they had a place that they fit in in the the structure of of the government. When it came to the king, there was already a king. It was God, and he was the one who gave them the law, and he was the one who uh, freed them from their enemies. When it came to Israel having a king, it's like you have a human guy who's supposed to be, in some sense, taking God's job, but they're not supposed to treat him as God. They're still supposed to obey God. And so what does he do? Does he make up new laws? Well, he's not really supposed to do that because the law was already given by God. Is it, Like, what, what is his role? Well, his role ends up being, okay, do God's will and show other people how to do it. You know, like, be, be a wise figure who leads people closer to God, the true king. And if you begin to think that you're the true king, then you lose your only job, your only true vocation as king of Israel because you've usurped the kingdom from the one who's truly supposed to be ruling it. And so what this rule is supposed to say is it's reminding the king, you are not the one who's in charge here. You're going to write the law, but you're not writing your own laws. You're writing God's laws. And if you start getting them wrong, those priests are going to be there to slap your hand and say, no, write it right. You don't get to be in charge here. God is in charge, and you are submissive to him. And so then verse 19 This law that he writes down, it shall be with him, and he shall read of it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and all of its statutes. He is not free to do as he wants to do. He is supposed to be submissive and subject to the kingdom, to to the will of God, which, by the way, Jesus often speaks in those ways that he does not do what his ever his own will is but he submits himself to the very will of God. Why you know if Jesus is God why does he speak that way? Like one reason Jesus speaks that way is to demonstrate what a true king of kings is ultimately supposed to be. So he's showing us what a true king is. He is submissive even to the will of God, even though he himself is God. Even though he himself is eternal and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made, he still is subject to the will of God. And in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepares for his crucifixion and you actually see a divergence where Jesus is desiring something for himself that would avoid the cross, he ends that prayer by saying, but not my will, thine be done. That should be the mantra of any king. That should be the mantra of any ruler. That should be the mantra of any follower. Well, when you get to verse 20 of chapter 17, you find out the reason why. Uh, Why is he supposed to have this law? Why he's supposed to read it day after day? (laughs) This, This command was so ignored that when they're doing a temple reconstruction project in the days of, of Josiah many, many years later, he finds a copy of the law. And they're like, what's that? I don't know. Bring it to a prophetess. Like the kings clearly were not doing this by that time. When Josiah sees it, or sees it, it ends up you know, changing everything for him. And he has a lot of reforms that his sons don't continue in. But this is something that had been completely neglected by most of the kings in Israel. The reason they were supposed to do it in verse 20 was so that his heart would not be lifted above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. Notice the reasoning there. Number one, so that he doesn't start to think he's better than the people he's ruling. If you are the one with all the wealth, you are the one with all the horses, and you're the one with all the wives, and you're the one who is, gets to wear the crown and sit on the throne, it's very easy to start thinking you are the most important person in town. And the reason you're not supposed to accumulate those things, and you're supposed to write the law of God and every day read it, it's a reminder that you are a follower of someone greater, just like everyone else is. Do not lift yourself up above your countrymen. That is an essential idea for being a ruler in the eyes of God. You are not greater than the people that you are ruling you are not greater than the people that you are leading. But then the second reason, so that he would not turn aside from God's commandment. If you never read God's commandment, it becomes a whole lot easier to ignore God's commandment. That's one of the problems with with memorizing Scripture, is when you have it in your head, it pops up whenever you have decisions to make sometimes and if that doesn't happen you can do whatever you want to do but if you have this this law of god that is a part of your life and a part of your daily reading schedule you're going to know what god wants you to do in certain situations and you make that a part of your life so that you make the right decisions the king does not have the authority to make his own decisions he has to make god's decisions and so that's all part of that process You can read through this and you can see that exactly what Moses said was going to happen, happened. They entered the land, the people wanted a king, God gave them a king. The exact type of king that Moses told them to have, they rejected and they did not do that. They chose kings who acted like every other king out there and it led to confusion, it led to turmoil, it led to exile, and it led to death. But there is one from Nazareth who... Accumulated no wealth, no horses, no wives. He's one who lived in submission to the will of God his entire life. He's one whose crown was made of thorns and whose throne was a cross. But he's one who took on the will of God into himself and he suffered the brunt of the wrath of men. But through that, God made him the ultimate victor through the resurrection, and he's the one that we follow today. Um, A lot can be said about the kings of Israel and the kings in the world today, you can, you know, by king, I'm using that term loosely, the the rulers of, of nations and the rulers of men, how many of them follow this pattern right here, and how many of them do things their own way? As Christians who are part of the kingdom of God, we have our own king, and he's one who I think that you're not going to find a king better than. You're not going to find a king who loves you more than him, has sacrificed more than him, and so I would encourage you, There are a lot of kings that are going to fight for your loyalty throughout your life. There are a lot of kings who are going to vie for your allegiance and who are going to try to to get you to care more about their initiatives and their agendas than anything else. Remember who your true king is, and remember who the true king of the kingdom of God is and what he lives like and what he does. Uh, If there's anyone here who would like to submit your life to the reign of the true king of the world, of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, we invite you to do so, naming him as Lord and king of your life, as son of God, having your sins washed away in baptism and living for him. If we can help you do that, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.